Welcome back to the Flex Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, where we talk about everything here to increase your fitness performance and better body composition, all without destroying your health in a flexible system. And today, I've got a great researcher, and we're talking all about collagen. Now, you may think collagen... Isn't that just a horrible low-grade protein? Doesn't do anything to help muscle repair? Who gives a crap? And that's kind of what I thought as of about five years ago. Then I started reading some research around that time a little bit after from Dr. Keith Barr's lab, looking at collagen may be useful for soft tissue recovery, and that it may have lots of other benefits too. Um, So I was at the International Society of Sports Nutrition, And the researcher here gave a great talk on a brand new study that she did regarding uh, collagen. And it had some pretty positive results and the dosing was quite small. So I talked to her afterwards and was able to uh, twist her arm and get her on the podcast today. So as always, this podcast is brought to you by the Flex Diet Certification. Go to flexdiet.com. And you can get on the wait list for the next time that the Flex Diet Cert will open. Uh, Right now, it looks like that's going to be January of 2022. But in the meantime, that'll put you on the free newsletter where you'll have all sorts of great content. So go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com, and hop on to the wait list. So today, as I mentioned, we're talking uh, collagen. Uh, with Shy, and she will be finishing up her PhD here very soon um, under Dr. Mike Ormsby, and we talk everything about her undergraduate work and her master's work uh, with uh, some of the Navy SEALs and Special Forces, uh, everything there from potentially PTSD, uh, some stuff related to brain impact, uh, traumatic brain injury, I run past her my crazy ideas about the use of ketones and other things that may be beneficial for TBI. And then we get into collagen. Is it useful? What is it useful for? What are some of the mechanisms of how it may help? Uh, Dosing, timing, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I think you'll really enjoy this one and check it out. And welcome back to the Flex Diet podcast. We have a very special guest here today, uh, Shai Lua. Did I pronounce your name wrong? Fuller? Shalua. Shalua. Okay. And we're talking about collagen. And I met you after your great presentation at the International Society of Sports Nutrition back Ooh, a while ago now. Um, yeah, so welcome to the program. We appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, do you want to give us just a short little uh, background of your experience and kind of where you're at and what you're researching? I know you're uh, working under Dr. Mike Ormsby, correct? I am, yeah, here at uh, Florida State University at the Institute of Sports Science and Medicine. Um I originally came from San Diego, where I did my undergraduate and uh, dual master's in exercise physiology and sports nutrition at San Diego State University. 
And um, I also completed a dietetics program there. And then I went on to work for the United States Navy as a contractor, a research physiologist um, for several years. And then when I was ready to get back into uh, my doctoral work, I came over here under uh, Mike Ormsby and I've been um, researching collagen supplementation for the last three years. And we just concluded a large scale um, supplement study in older active adults. Uh, And that's when I met you at the ISSN conference back in June, um, when I was giving a talk on uh, some of our findings. Awesome. And are you at liberty to say what you worked on with the US Navy? Or is that still classified? Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, nothing classified. Uh, So I worked with the Navy EOD um, community. They're the ones that take care of um, explosives, explosive ordnance disposal. Mm -hmm. And so we did a uh, kind of like a human performance surveillance program with them that was intended to be a multi-stage program to develop a um, kind of surveillance from uh, the beginning of their careers to the end to make sure that they're staying in good health physically, mentally, and, um, you know, operator readiness. And so worked with them for a few years, developing that program and assessing them. And then I went on to work, uh, with the Navy SEALs to look at how shoulder mountain rocket launchers were affecting, um, some brain function. And, uh, that's kind of where I left off when I came out here to Florida state. Awesome. I would imagine, and I've never obviously done this job or anything close to it, but being someone who would be potentially dismantling bombs and then retiring from that, I just think that that would be one of the hardest transitions. Yeah. Like would anything, um, I mean, because the, the stress and just everything that goes into that and then to be done i don't know it just seems to me like nothing will ever sort of i don't want to use the word live up to it but the highs and lows you would have from that job and now not having that sort of variability in your life would be a weird transition i absolutely agree um i didn't really meet too many retired eod um i have known a number of service members who have retired and um, at different stages in their careers. And they've definitely had uh, an, a, a hard time transitioning. And I think that they do have programs for them. Um, I think, you know, when they're in that line of work, some see a little bit more action than others, and some are more re- resilient than others. And some kind of keep thriving on that, um, that stress and the adrenaline and some kind of, you know, want to spend more time with their families and kind of not be in danger. Um, sure. at some points of their lives. So it, it is a little bit more individual, um, but it's definitely, I think, difficult for a lot of service members to transition back to civilian life, um, you know, when they're ready to do that or not ready and they have to do it. So, Right. And you were just looking at more overall kind of uh, welfare of them to make sure everything was from a physiology standpoint going well? Um, so for us, we're develop we're in the beginning stage of developing something, something for their community, kind of a surveillance. So what we were doing was, uh, we worked with a number of different labs together and we, um, had developed kind of like 
you know, a total body workup in, in a sense. Um, they would see the physiologist, which is me and some other people. We would do um, stress tests. We would do max, uh, you know, one, one repetition max testing with them to see where their strength was, what their cardiovascular fitness was. Um, we would do nutritional assessments with them. Um, we would take uh, salivary biomarkers of hormone responses and look at their diurnal variation in cortisol and testosterone and DHEA. Then they would see some of the sports psychologists and they would take them through a number of different assessments um, for performance. And uh, they would, you know, take a lot of survey evaluations for combat exposure and PTSD and anxiety, depression, um, a lot of those types of metrics. Then they would uh, go through functional movement screens um, with biomechanics. And so all of that together, we would do a workup and we kind of start designed it so we could start seeing them annually. And then nice. we would also develop a report for them after each session so that we could give them their, um, their evaluations and then also recommendations on how, what to do to work on certain factors that needed some work. And, um, and then after I left that lab, they were still speaking with the community about then developing educational programs to bring into that community where they could help kind of uh, improve fitness in all of those uh, different areas for them so that it wasn't so much on them individually to do that. Um, so, you know, the Navy SEALs have always kind of had a lot of funding for those types of programs in place. So we are trying to develop something very similar to that. Nice. Well, that'd be very interesting. And it's nice that they have programs like that so that we can, you know, see where everyone's at. And then you can obviously allows you to do some type of intervention, as you mentioned earlier, instead of catching everything at the end. Yeah. And it's a good way, you know, potentially as we talk about sports and a lot of um, investigators out there are looking at different biomarkers and metrics to look at overtraining, for instance, in athletes, uh, you know, just kind of developing similar uh, similar kind of ways to monitor, um, some of the war fighters also is good before you start sending them back out to combat or on deployments to make sure that they're ready. Um, so it's kind of, it's pretty important to think of it in that standpoint too, because they are, they're athletes as well, the tactical athletes. So you got to make sure that, you know, you work them up and you, you, you get them ready for performance, just like you would for, um, an athlete going into a season. Yeah, definitely. And do you think there is some risk of like shoulder fired projectiles and uh, issues on your brain in terms of, you know, all the way from just mild concussive stuff to, you know, full blown like TBI or traumatic brain injury? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, there is a lot of that in that setting. So EOD, we did assess how many people were getting exposure and how many exposures, um, when I was working with the Navy SEALs, I actually worked with um, DivBIC, which they deal a lot with the um, TBIs there and concussions. Mm. And so we collaborated with them with the blast exposure study, which was with the SEALs, not the EOD guys. Um, and they were actually, you know, I, I did, I volunteered there and I talked to a lot of people and they have a full-blown program and concussion and, uh, you know, different um, severities of TBI are a major issue in that community, um, all over military wide, obviously. Um, some of them are, you know, from being deployed and some of them are just that they're active duty and they get into car accidents or some other accidents happen. Um, this, the other study I was working on was actually with some of the shoulder mountain mounted rocket launchers. And so those emit a negative pressure wave. 
Mm. which can actually impact the brain, um, similar to CTE, but it's called astroglial scarring. And so that's what we're investigating in that study to see how is that impacting these people, especially the range safety officers who are out there um, teaching the team guys that roll through every month um, how to use these, <laughs> these <laughs> guns. Um, so they're the ones that are getting a lot of exposure. So we are looking at, uh, you know, the differences between those guys who are there in that post for three years versus um, the team guys who come through and only do this training, you know, as they're doing their workup, or even we started doing the SQT guys as well, who are just basically the guys who just graduated from buds who haven't seen any action yet. So, um, but I have not seen any of those results, so I can't speak to what we found. <laughs> sure. Looking at nutrition interventions, do you think use of a ketone ester or I know just having everyone do a ketogenic diet presents a whole host of other issues, but something like a ketone ester as a supplement beforehand, do you think there would be any beneficial aspects to that? Uh, it's an interesting concept. I'm not sure if they're looking at that or not. Um, yeah, I would be interested to see if it has protective effects. I know that, you know, a lot of the creatine studies have seen that it can right. have protective effects against um, concussion. So I haven't seen anything like that in the literature with the ketone esters, though. Have you? Kind of like I did a whole like shameless plug, but I did a whole program for the Kerrig <laughs> Institute. Uh, they do. I'm a social professor there, so they do clinical neurology. Okay. So they, you know, a lot of the clinicians there deal with um, like TBI. Uh, my buddy, Dr. Jeremy Schmo here in Minnesota and the Centers for Plasticity are probably, in my biased opinion, like some of the top centers for recovery from TBI. And so I did a program for them on use of a ketogenic diet as an adjunct for potentially post uh, recovery, but it's interesting. I think that there is some potential benefit for it because as you know, and for the listeners, like the two main things, if you just take a big whack to the head is you get um, your energy, your body, your brain's ability to use glucose kind of goes offline and then you start having a lot of um, inflammation. You could potentially have your blood-brain barrier can open up, and now you've got your brain being flooded with everything else in addition to having a massive energy crisis at the same time. So there's some interesting studies with ketones that ketones can still uh, supply the brain as an alternate energy source when glucose metabolism is kind of offline, and they might be having anti-inflammatory effects uh, via HDAC and some other other effects. In terms of like human subject studies, it's really limited though. There was a couple studies that came out that showed it might be promising. But again, it's one of those things where everyone's like, well, we want the the perfect randomized controlled trial. And as you know, that it's just never going to happen in that area, right? You can yeah, yeah. prophylactically maybe treat certain groups who are going to be exposed to high forces and not treat another group potentially. Um, but you're not going to set up a randomized controlled trial where, Hey, come on into the lab. We'll give you a thwack on the head. Half of you get ketones, half of you don't, right? It's just, it's not going to happen. But I think there's a fair amount of preliminary data. And for me personally, like if I'm uh, kiteboarding and something horrible happens, I get 
dropped 15 feet out of the sky on my head. I actually carry ketone esters in my, my kiteboarding <laughs> bags. I figure, well, I'll give it a go because I don't think there's much of a negative downside to it. And maybe there's an upside, but I'm not too worried about the downside. So I'll kind of hedge my bets in, in that direction for a while. So I, that's a, that's a good way of looking at it and definitely very smart to do. I kind of have, uh, you know, similar, in, uh, thoughts about that too, with some of the sports that I do. Um, if it's not going to do any harm, all it can do is maybe do some benefit. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I haven't, uh, I'd be interested to look into that a little bit more. I was, I was kind of interested for a while with looking at, um, some, uh, BDNF, uh, promoters that aside hmm. from exercise, um, in that population. Cause I did, I did help those guys a little bit, um, with some of the rehab in the gym. And I looked at kind of high intensity interval training on bikes for people that are actually able to exercise. Um, and I think that there, I, I looked into metformin also potentially having some benefits in that, uh, arena, but I really don't know if anybody's looked at, um, metformin and BDNF, but there are some other associated pathways that I thought that might kind of cross. And so I thought it might be a mimetic for exercise potentially in populations that are injured too injured to exercise, to increase BDNF for, to help promote some recovery. But, um, you know, so it's, it's kind of some, I, I, that whole area of research is really intriguing to me. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's mostly animal work, but I think there's some human work now showing hippocampal volume increases with uh, moderate aerobic exercise. And I think there was a study done that showed the muscle is actually releasing BDNF. Does that sound correct? Yeah. So I think there's two mechanisms. There's muscular release, and then uh, we have the release in the brain. Right. Um, and there's irisin involved in the muscular release yep. of that. Um, we did we did have an abstract, uh, at ACSM for 2020 It was a virtual one on, uh, we went back and looked at some of the blood from Ultraman to look at, uh, long duration, high intensity exercise and BDNF. Cause it's really unexplored. I mean, nobody's ever looked at exercise right. more than 60 minutes and it does, it's, it's mainly released at, you know, above 80% of VO2 max. Hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, you'd really have to do like some hit work to really get those increases. And nobody really knows how long they, they remain elevated because, you know, they kind of drop back down to baseline values, um, pretty soon after exercise. But again, it's, it's really just been understudied in my opinion. So, um, but we did see some elevations with that three day ultra endurance race, which was really exciting. And I think when we can eventually go back to that race, I think we'll probably look at it a little bit more in depth too. So Hmm. That's super interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You think supplements like lion's mane actually increase BDNF? Uh, I haven't seen any studies with BDNF. I have seen that, you know, I've seen, you know, uh, increased cognitive function potentially. Right. Um, I've definitely tried it. I can't, I think it works. I'm not sure it could be a placebo effect, you know, uh, me and my N of one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I love the, I love that whole area of research with cognitive function and collagen actually is, uh, also being looked at in that realm too. So super interesting. Yeah. yeah. And one, I took a 
shitload of <laughs> lion's mane <laughs> before I did uh with my buddy Jeremy Schmo, I did a week of intensive uh basically neurotherapy at, at his clinic. So I would go in, did an assessment, and then I would I just stayed in a hotel over on that side of the cities and did three sessions a day for a week and I took a couple grams of <laughs> lion's oh, mane wow. per day. <laughs> I'm like, ah, it's pretty safe. I don't really know if it helped. <laughs> I mean, the end result is it seemed to work, but who knows, you know? <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah. With a lot of those, you know, just, I always question, especially if you're, you know, obviously, you know, if you're on any other medications, what that's the only thing is I, I think yeah. about all the vitamins that I take already and I have no idea how they're going to interact with each other. So yeah. And psilocybin can increase uh, neuroplasticity too, but that's currently not legal. So that might yeah. be a little tricky. <laughs> yeah. I've been, I've been seeing a lot of headlines on a lot of the, um, psychedelics being utilized for treatment of many different things, including PTSD. Um, yeah. The MDMA. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I haven't had a chance to really dive into that literature yet, but I definitely have that, you know, on the to-do list for when my schedule opens up a little bit more. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I've read not all of it, but a fair amount of it. And it's, I mean, especially in the area of mental health, it's very promising. I mean, obviously, it's still pretty um, early. Um, but some of the studies that, you know, MAPS uh, have done, Rick Doblin and those guys are pre- pretty positive, you know, and they're very nice, you know, well-designed um, studies, you know, Roland Griffins has helped with that, a bunch of other people. So it's, it's cool to see, you know, potential solutions now that are being tested in a very rigorous scientific um, manner. And so far, you know, the results are pretty darn promising. So hopefully that trend will continue. Yeah, I hope so. And it seems that they've had really positive results in areas where um, other things have not really been uh, very effective. So, yeah, I've I've seen a lot of advertisements also for some of these um, combination therapies too, with the, some of the psychedelics like low doses and um, cognitive behavioral therapy and some mm-hmm. other things. So. Yeah, and that's what's interesting too is that the model they're using is combining you know some type of talk therapy you know with it at the same same time, and you know the reported change in you know one to two sessions is. Pretty, pretty crazy. But again, as they point out, it's, it's probably the combination of it because not everyone who just takes the drugs by themselves has these (laughs) massive changes. It's most likely the combination with the therapist, you know, being guided under, you know, controlled settings too. Yes, absolutely. Um, I know that I think the military, uh, were the ones that kind of started with the research into, um, sensory deprivation. Yes. So, you know, a lot of stuff stems from military and then gets kind of is brought out into the mainstream. And so now uh, I haven't seen it too much here on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, um, it's a huge booming business for the float tanks and the float sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. And I've actually tried them and they are incredible. So um, personally, I can attest to, uh, you know, body wise feeling relief of uh, physical tension. And then also it just really does help. Like with, we're so overstimulated all the time. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of really nice new alternative types of, uh, therapies that are coming out that seem to be pretty effective. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, 
uh, flow chambers. I, the first one I did was actually here in Minnesota, like, man, six years ago now, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was in the bottom of this small practitioner's place. It was one of the early designs where it looked like you were crawling through a, a dryer in the wall. It was not, <laughs> not real big. And I get in there and it, it took me probably almost six months before I did it. Cause I'm like, do I really want to be not without any stimulation and left alone with my own brain for like <laughs> 90 minutes? I'm like, this sounds like a horrible idea. I'm yeah, like, oh, I idea. should <laughs> probably do it then, I guess. And I remember laying there and my first thought was, wow. I didn't realize I had this much tension in my neck and my low back, right? Because you're removing a lot of the other normal sensations you have. Right. And then my next thought was after about 30 minutes, I was like, oh, this is the last appointment of the day. Are they going to leave me down here? What if they forget about me? Could I get locked in? You know, all these other weird thoughts go through your head. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what, what happens when you're left alone with your thoughts. Um, but I think a lot of the hallucinogenic, uh, types of therapies also kind of try to promote that too, is like digging deep and going within without all the external noise. So, yeah, yeah. I did, um, a combo in ayahuasca in Costa Rica this last January and the place we went, the, the shaman down there, I talked to her a fair month before and after, and she was saying that they treat a lot of, you know, military veterans for everything from PTSD to all sorts of stuff. And it was a, pretty crazy experience. And if anyone looks down that path, I would spend a lot of time making sure you know what you're doing, making sure you're going to a place that has done it a lot. I mean, my experience was was great. I did a whole podcast on it. But after having that experience, I could definitely see how stuff could go bad really, really fast. <laughs> yeah. So I I actually I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, he does the, the tools for Titans and, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people, actually, a lot of, you know, the, you know, leading pioneers of industry do this trip with the shamans that now I've heard about, you know, they have, uh, these trips and they did mention that, you know, it can be very eye opening, but really it, it, you have to make sure that the person is absolutely knows what they're doing and very reputable because I can only imagine how it could go wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's one of those things where I explain it to people of it, I think in the right hands and done well, the compounds themselves don't really present a lot of, you know, toxicity or risk, but the environment and how you're being watched and everything that's going on. I just, one of the things I remember during part of the ceremony was just lying there. And we went down with a group of people that we knew all of them, except for two, it was only eight people, small thing. I remember lying there going, wow, this is so cool that all these people wanted to do this experience. And I'm just here with them and they're not a bunch of dickheads. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I remember just thinking that, wow, if there's a bunch of people that, you know, maybe weren't into it or didn't know what they signed up for or, you know, other things, I think, the experience itself would have been quite different. So it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Actually, that would actually freak me out if I found out that I was going, I was going to do that experience with a lot of people I didn't know. I think that would be a little bit more concerning for me or <laughs> anxiety provoking, but I yeah. guess it, the right, the right combination could definitely make it a good experience. Um, yeah. I find it intriguing. I haven't tried anything like that yet, but we'll see what, what comes in the future. So 
Yeah. I mean, the flip argument to that too, is that if you're off kind of in your, your own experience, you probably don't even know where you're at. So I remember the, the guy next to me, the shaman came around and I think he had like one or two doses and he's just lying there on his side, like super quiet. Like a lot of other people were, were throwing up, crying, having just, you know, crazy stuff going on. Oh, wow. And so the shaman comes over to him and she's, she's like, how are you doing? And he's just like, Meh. and she's like, do you want another dose? And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, he was just lying there so quiet. I'm like, I guess he's going through some shit too. <laughs> yeah. He's digging deep. He's getting in there. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. I think it takes a lot of courage, I think, to to go down that road. Um, because that that's pretty scary, intimidating. Yeah, it definitely can be. I mean, some people listen to the episode, they got the two responses of that was kind of interesting. I think I'll check into it more. And then the other half of my friends are like, hell no, I'm never doing that. That sounded like it was incredibly crazy and I'm definitely not doing it now. I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, whatever, <laughs> whatever you decide, I just want people to be somewhat informed before they do anything. So yeah, absolutely. I was, I was so surprised when I heard that in uh, the, in the Ferris podcast that it's kind of like a regular thing for a lot of these people, but yeah, they definitely do a lot of research before they uh, decide who to go do that with. And so that was the, the common theme between people. So, yeah. Um, cool. And transitioning to um, <laughs> collagen, like just give us a little background on collagen, because for the longest time, like when I was doing, you know, a lot of my undergrad stuff, it was like, oh, this worthless protein, it doesn't do anything. And it's just not doesn't have all the good essential amino acids. And it's, oh, it's just a crappy protein. We don't worry about it. And now it's kind of gone the other extreme because everything in fitness goes from one extreme to the next. Of right. <laughs> collagen will do everything for you. <laughs> well, it's funny because so, you know, and I've spoken to some people and they, they don't even want to, they kind of said that like maybe collagen would be looked at a little bit differently if we didn't call it a protein. But, um, mm. uh, I actually, I, I teach introduction to nutrition and I lectured on protein today. So, um, it's absolutely a protein and it's actually the most abundant protein in the human body. Um, if you look at it from that standpoint, approximately 30% of our total body's protein is collagen. So we have mm. it in all of our tissue. Um, we have it in our skin, our, our bone and our teeth. Those are made out of collagen matrix that just filled in with, um, you know, some of the calcium and phosphate and some of the minerals, um, all of our, you know, tendons, our ligaments, our vessels, everything has collagen in it. So, you know, um, it's a large component of the extracellular matrix with elastin and, um, I think it, it gained popularity, um, a long time ago with, uh, with skin rejuvenation and anti-aging. And they did see a lot of benefits that were, um, backed by research. And so people have been taking collagen for a long time for skin. And I think just recently it gained some popularity as something for joints. I think, you know, going through undergrad and even grad school, everybody always talked about glucosamine and chondroitin. Yeah. And then the consensus was basically that, you know, they're not really that effective. And, um, it's funny because I've been at Florida state now studying collagen pretty much from the day I walked in the door. Um, 
And that was three years ago. And I probably started taking collagen about four years ago. Um, I have a lot of like sports related injuries that are chronic. And, um, I heard that it could potentially help me with some of my joint pain. Um, and I felt like it actually did. And I've gone off of it multiple times, uh, to see if the pain returns and it does. And then, um, you know, added benefits are that I get a lot of compliments on my skin and my hair because <laughs> it grows nice. like crazy. Everybody yeah. likes that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So people are always commenting that they can't believe how old I am. So, um, you know, I'm just like, I'll, I'll continue the use of this just for those benefits. But, um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, I actually saw a lot of improvements in my own functionality. And so we did do the study. Uh, we gave people um, collagen supplements in three different dosages. Uh, we had a placebo group, 10 grams a day and 20 grams a day. And they actually split those doses in half. So they're asked to take their, um, their dose in the morning and in the afternoon or evening. And it was a double blind study the entire time. And we had participants that took it uh, for six months and nine months. And it was pretty much evenly split 50-50 between males and females, 40 to 65 years old, and recreationally active the majority of their lives with no diagnosis of any kind of osteoarthritis or any major injuries, just kind of activity-related chronic pain. Um, and we did see that, you know, they, on some of their um, survey measures of activities of daily living, which would translate to physical function, that our uh, 10 gram a day group actually saw improvements in activities of daily living. And then when we looked at people who were exercising more than the recommendation uh, for weekly activity for healthy Americans, that uh, we also saw reductions in pain in those hmm. same scales. So um, in that sense, we did see proof of concept uh, on those measures in that study that we did. Um, we're still analyzing and actually digging way deeper and further with uh, some of the mechanistic stuff with the blood that we have to look at maybe what are the reasons that we're seeing those changes. So are we, you know, are we seeing increases in collagen production and repair or, you know, what are some of the potential uh, mechanisms that, you know, allowed us to see some of these improvements in physical function? Um, so that's kind of uh, the gist of it with collagen from, you know, my research standpoint, um, you know, people are looking at it for a, a number of different reasons. Um, they're looking at it for body composition improvements. They're looking at it for pain, for increased function, for osteoarthritis. There's been a ton of studies on that. Um, and I think they're starting to look at it with, uh, look at how it could potentially improve cognitive function, um, for a number of different reasons. And obviously vasculature, um, can also be improved potentially just because, uh, if we're, you know, improving or enhancing synthesis, then we might be able to re repair some of the, um, the endothelial cells too, uh, that have collagen in them. So, um, multiple, multiple mechanisms of action, especially when collagen is so abundant in the human body. Very cool. And in the study, was there a difference between the 10 gram and the 20 gram, uh, dosing per day? So with the, uh, with what we saw significant changes in for the 10 gram a day group, we saw like slight improvements in a 20 gram a day group, but they weren't statistically significant. Mm. So, um, I think there might be a potential that, you know, if we're introducing a certain amount of these bioactive peptides, which are thought to be kind of uh, the reason that we're promoting increased synthesis, uh, 
um, that, you know, maybe there's kind of like a blunting effect with too much in the pool, potentially, if we kind of think about it as like an amino acid pool, but, um, you know, it's the glycine, the proline and the hydroxyproline, which are the main three amino acid constituents of the collagen. And so when you're, when they're found in these, uh, dye and tripeptide, um, combinations, which have been shown to be actually, uh, absorbed through the digestive system into the blood intact, uh, they're known to have bioactive effects, um, when they're intact like that. And so, um, so it, it could be possible that the 20 gram a day group just has too much of it and it's just dampening signal, but yeah, wow. so the 10 gram a day group seems to be, uh, effective in our study. There are studies out there that have seen improvements with 15 grams a day, but we did test the difference between 10 and, you know, 15 and 15 and 20. So, uh, it would be interesting to see if 15 is optimal dose. Yeah. Because you said it was split. So they're taking five grams in the morning and five grams in the evening, which at face value, and I know I'm always biased because I think of sort of a raw materials standpoint, not a cell signaling standpoint. Uh-huh. It just seems like such a, a tiny amount. But I think to your point that maybe they're providing a raw material for certain things in the body, but maybe they're triggering all these other processes that they're upregulating. And maybe that's some of the benefit too. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. So there's, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons why we might be seeing these, uh, these kind of changes happening. Um, also speaking of raw materials, you know, uh, glycine is one of the main amino acids. And although it's not an essential amino acid, a lot of people do argue that it it could be considered essential or conditionally essential just because, we use glycine for almost every single process in the human body. And so if you really think about it, uh, we're probably not consuming adequate amounts and producing adequate amounts to really facilitate all of that. So the fact that we're providing a good source of glycine by consuming the collagen is just from a raw material standpoint, just we're, we're giving the body what it needs to be able to uh, continue and do these processes that it needs to do, which is usually lacking. Um, especially in our kind of Western diet where we don't have high glycine containing foods. I know that was kind of the glycine hypothesis, which I know has been kind of gone back and forth and I've even gone back and forth on it. Like at one point I was like, I don't know if you just eat enough protein, you're fine. And then I'm like, well, I don't know. It doesn't really show up as much as I thought there. So now I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) And that's the crazy thing that there have been a lot of studies that have looked at glycine and the blood after with, you know, people that are consuming kind of like a high protein diet. And they looked at comparisons between meat eaters and vegetarians. And they actually found that vegetarians had higher glycine levels really in their bodies. Yeah. And then uh, that was also um, the high meat you know, was those diets were associated with metabolic disease and, you know, when, with weight loss, like glycine content actually went up. So there's a lot of interesting stuff out there that you just kind of have to tie it all together. Um, I've been swimming in this literature for a while, so (laughs) I kind of have to, I'm kind of doing that right now currently. Um, but yeah, so there's that element with the glycine and also glycine is known to be anti-inflammatory. So that could also impact pain just by itself. Um, and so, you know, I have been asked if people just take glycine, will that be effective? But the thing is that, you know, 
We're also seeing the benefits from the combinations of glycine with proline or hydroxyproline, but we're also seeing uh, a lot of benefits from the proline and hydroxyproline also. Um, there have been uh, some radioactive labeling studies that look at, you know, where are these amino acids going when you're consuming it? And so they are finding that, you know, higher amounts are going into cartilage, for instance. And so areas that might need a little bit more repair um, than other areas. So it's a, it's a mystery. It definitely is, but it seems that we are seeing some very positive results, uh, in the literature and in our study also. So, um, I, I find that it's a very exciting time to be in the collagen, in the collagen arena. <laughs> yeah. And wasn't there something with glycine that was supposed to help promote sleep? I'm blanking on where I read that, or I could have completely made that up. And someone on the internet told me, <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I don't think I came across that. Um, okay. I haven't looked at collagen and sleep. So I think that, you know, maybe if I put that into a search, I might, something might come up. I mean, when I looked at glycine, it's the, so many, uh, mechanisms that glycine is involved in. It's yeah. virtually involved in every single physiological process in the body, which is why, you know, there is that hypothesis that, right. Yeah, that you know we do not have enough, and we definitely cannot make enough um, in our bodies. But I I found that very interesting that the vegetarians actually had higher glycine contents, and that was uh, the low glycine was also associated with metabolic disease. So, hmm. and in your study, was it a particular type of collagen, or um, so it's what do people look for? Uh, it's type one, type three combo. Uh, it's made by a company out of Belgium that did obviously fund the study, um, but it was double blinded. So, you know, right. we kind of controlled as much as possible and we did have a placebo. Um, and so it's very similar to, you know, a majority of the type one, type three combo collagen products that are out there. Generally the type two collagen products are in capsule form. Um, and, you know, there's still, you know, a lot of questions whether or not the type of collagen you're consuming actually has any kind of impact on which tissues it's directed. To. Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's something, unfortunately, I haven't been able to answer, but they have looked at, um, at where the collagen goes. And it does look like when you're doing, when you're consuming a collagen one, three, that you are also seeing the distribution of those amino acids to connective tissue that would be predominantly type two, such as the cartilage. Um, I have not seen any studies that where they consumed just type two cartilage and looked at whether or not that was, uh, being distributed to the skin and other, um, tissues that would be mainly, uh, type one collagen fibers and type one and three are predominantly found in your skin and your ligaments and your tendons. Um, and you know, type two is generally found in your cartilage. So there is that kind of distinction. Um, and, but I, I don't think anybody can really answer the question, but it does look like the type one and three does also positively impact cartilage. So I don't know if hmm. the converse is true. And correct me if I'm wrong, but type one and three are primarily in like, uh, animal hides and sort of cow bovine sources. Is that correct? Yeah. So you can, uh, the most popular sources are going to be bovine and porcine. So from uh, cowhide and pig. Um, and then a lot of some of the fish also that's becoming pretty popular. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, the fish skins and um, a lot of, you know, their collagen containing uh, tissues. And then uh, 
I, chicken sternum is kind of what they're using a lot for the type two collagen. Type two, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Is there any data you would say to mix up the kind of collagens you're taking so far, or should you just kind of, eh, just pick one and try it out? There isn't really a lot of consensus yet on the different types. I haven't, I haven't seen anything where they've really mixed the type two. I, I do think that that's kind of the next step where people need to start looking at that. And then also looking at dosing timing. Um, it does seem that there are some strategies that, you know, people agree on that you sh- it should be taken like approximately an hour before activity. So you can get, um, greater blood flow to those areas that are poorly vascularized, um, like the tendons. Um, but you know, that's also kind of lacking too. So I think the two uh, areas of research that really need to be investigated a little bit more would be, um, you know, which tissues do the specific collagen fiber types that you're eating, are they directed to specific tissue and uh, would a combination be better? And then also, you know, at when uh, is the best time to take it? You know, should it, uh, especially surrounding exercise, since um, exercise seems to induce the greatest benefits uh, with collagen consumption. So um, I'm not sure if uh, the 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 literature really supports seeing it in really sedentary populations as much as it does with con- in conjunction with like an exercise program or in an active population. Yeah, I mean that's I mean we talk about the diet, and that's one thing I did. Man, maybe three and a half ish years ago, I started doing the 15 grams of collagen, you know, 40 to 60 minutes before exercise. It seemed to help. And then I started doing it with uh, clients and it seemed to help them. Uh, it was based on a lot of work from uh, Dr. Keith Barr's lab. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on that? Do you think, like, I always think of potential upside and downside again of, I don't know. I mean, we're probably, again, probably never going to have the perfect study because no human's going to be like, oh, please take part of my ACL and destroy it and see if it's stronger <laughs> than what it was before, you know? So we're probably always going to be somewhat, I think, limited with some of those studies, but some of the stuff he's done, which, you know, some ex vivo models and, and limited yeah, is still pretty fascinating. Really cool stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I definitely, you know, it makes complete sense to me to take it beforehand because that is, I mean, a lot of the target tissue is really poorly vascularized. And, um, and so, you know, the only time that you're really getting increased blood flow to those areas is during activity. And so it would make sense that you want to have ample amounts of those bioactive peptides in the blood circulating so that, you know, they get delivered to that tissue, um, in higher quantities so that we can potentially promote, increased synthesis of, um, new collagen fibers. Um, you know, there's something interesting that I'm going to start looking at right now is, uh, for the last component of my dissertation is the matrix metalloproteinase activity, Mm. which are the enzymes that actually degrade those collagen fibers. And depending on which, uh, which types are kind of up and down regulated, it could be an indicator of, either clearance of, um, broken down unhealthy fibers to make way for the, uh, you know, the synthesis of new fibers, um, or it could be just uh, degradation of intact fibers too. So, um, I'm really curious to see what that turnover looks like with the supplementation, whether that promotes actually like more of the clearance because they do mm. kind of get, um, tangled up, like you can think of it as a, 
like a bamboo jungle where some of the bamboo pieces are kind of broken, but because they're so tightly packed, um, it doesn't ever get cleared away. And then you never actually grow like a new bamboo there because there's still one that exists there, but it's not Hmm. helping kind of hold up the structure. Right. So you can kind of think of it as that's what the matrix looks like. And that's kind of in essentially how like scar tissue kind of builds up. Yeah. And once we have that, you know, the integrity of the tissue is never as strong. Whereas if you're able to potentially clear out some of the, um, kind of the old and damaged fibers, then you might be able to regenerate or synthesize new fibers there. And hopefully, uh, that would lead to increased function and decreased pain. Um, and so, you know, that's also an interesting thing to think about. So that could be, um, also something that's happening with timing because those are also, uh, they're kind of, uh, force, um, mediated as well. So it's not just, uh, the increased blood flow, but there are other, um, you know, enzymes that are activated in the presence of some of these forces. So, um, so it does make sense to kind of have that collagen present there for when we're kind of priming that optimal environment for enhanced synthesis, I think. Yeah. And I believe this has been pretty much dispelled at this time, but I'm probably guilty of saying this. I know in the past that if you look at your muscle tissue, it takes around 90 days to kind of completely sort of turn over, but soft tissue, collagen, connective tissue, et cetera, is more like nine months. Yeah, but, it does take a while. <laughs> but I think there's some newer data, isn't it, from um, Luke Van Loon's lab and some other places showing that that's probably not true. I don't know. What are your thoughts on huh. that? I'll have to catch up on that because I haven't seen any of that literature uh, out. But when I look at the uh, literature for some of the biomarkers for collagen and bone turnover. Yeah, they're really um, that- slow. Yeah, really slow. And yeah. so it's hard to actually pinpoint whether or not, for instance, if you're looking at CTX and P1NP, whether or not you're looking at, um, if you're looking at bone or collagen, mm. because there's nothing that differentiates them. Um, but you can kind of think of it as like time course wise, um, they both have kind of long half-lives. And so, sure. yeah, so I, I don't know if they're finding that it's not nine months, but I mean, it's definitely longer, I think, than muscle tissue, which is why it takes a longer study and which is why we extended our study to nine months, just because it seems that you can't really see things um, happening at that level, turnover level uh, tissue wise, if you're not looking at it for extended periods of time. Same thing with, uh, there's only one study that's looked at long-term collagen supplementation with bone mineral density. And there's, um, a study out there that looked at one year of five grams a day, and they actually saw increases in bone mineral density in, hmm. um, in, uh, postmenopausal osteoporosis, uh, osteopenia females. Um, but you know, nobody's been able to see any changes in bone mineral density in less time than that. And that makes sense because the literature says that you really wouldn't see changes in bone mineral density before then. So, um, I think the connective tissue is also kind of on a similar time scale. It might be a little bit shorter, but, um, I'm hoping to get at that with some of the other markers that we're going to look at with the matrix metalloproteinases and the TGF beta. Yeah. Cause I've often wondered then if, you know, strength training or trying to add muscle or take your pick that 
is the process going to be limited then by the thing that turns over the slowest, right? So if muscle is turning over faster than soft tissue, are you limited by how fast and how strong you can reassemble the, the soft tissue, right? With the premise being that your body is very survival orientated and it's going to try to shut down some level of performance before you injure yourself. Granted, us silly humans can easily kind of <laughs> override that at certain times right. for sure. <laughs> um, and then I started thinking, is it going to be limited maybe by by bone, right? Because people think of bone as being very ultra stiff, but it does have some, I guess, lack of a better word, elastic properties to it without getting into the mechanics of material right. of it. So are maybe some of those things that like collagen maybe is beneficial to increase the turnover of those rate limiting structures? That's a fantastic question. And something that I think is drastically overlooked. I think that, you know, when we're talking about protein, we're always talking about muscle. It's all muscle. It's just muscle. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> the thing that's overlooked is that, you know, what connects the muscles to the bones and, yeah. you know, the bones to the bones is that connective tissue. And then you have the bones themselves too. And, you know, a lot of the injuries are actually in that connective tissue in yeah, most especially sports. In lifters. Yeah. And so, you know, and I think that, I think that, you know, uh, kind of like a training program with like a supplementation program, like for instance, people take whey. I don't think that collagen should be something that should be used as a substitute, but as like something that should be co-ingested potentially to help with targeting benefits to the different types of tissues to support each other. Right. Because, you know, if we're trying to build muscle and we're trying to produce more force and all these things, if we're only focusing on the contractile fibers and, you know, increasing the lean muscle size, then, you know, we're kind of neglecting to look at what are all the supporting tissues around the entire body that are going to facilitate those movements and, you know, all that force production. So, um, yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, we've kind of neglected to really look at the other tissues aside from bone. I mean, aside from muscle, skeletal muscle. And I think that it's something that we need to kind of look at. So I know they've done some proteomic studies with collagen supplementation, and they have seen that, um, some of the supporting structures are really the protein synthesis is upregulated with collagen, uh, hmm. consumption. And so I think that they need, there needs to be a differentiation when we're looking at these kind of, um, these benefits or these gains in, we need to separate out the tissue that we're specifically targeting. And I think we need to look at it as like a whole system kind of, you know, working together rather than just always kind of targeting like the skeletal muscle itself. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I've had clients do for many years now, especially if they're really kind of pushing the envelope is, if they're training in the morning, you know, one scoop of whey and 15 grams of collagen, like an hour before, if whey bothers their stomach, they'll drop to, you know, six to 12 grams of just an essential amino acid and a collagen, then it's all anecdotal. So you can't really compare it, but Absolutely. it seems like it's been <clears throat> beneficial. And then if they have some type of acute injury that they're cleared from their physical therapist, so they can start very light training. I'll have them do one session in the morning, take that an hour before, and then before their other session in the afternoon, do the same thing again. Because I, I think the myth is from Keith Barr's lab, but doesn't the 
how long the sort of synthetic response stays active is what was it like six to eight hours or something so in theory you could maybe do it twice per day to try to get more benefit of remodeling yeah i mean i think that there have been a couple of studies out there with some of the tendinopathy uh research yeah. that have done uh by daily uh rehabilitative exercise and they're not like huge they're not like a full-blown workout they're just no. kind of like go through your exercises um twice Correct. a day yeah. And then they did instruct them to take the collagen beforehand and they did see massive benefits, uh, in return to play, uh, decreased time to play, um, all of those things. One thing I wanted to mention though, and that, you know, I think we don't want to neglect this, that we want to make sure that we have some kind of fresh source of vitamin C, uh, when we do. Yeah, take I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, especially if we've been fasted all night and then we just have some whey and stuff like that, we might not have enough to really promote that hydroxylation of the proline. And that hydroxyproline is one of the, you know, one third of the major constituents of that collagen. And I think it was Shaw, um, one of the studies they looked at the yep. gummies with the vitamin C, they, uh, they found out that, you know, after an overnight fast, if they didn't have vitamin C with the collagen, that they weren't seeing the same effects. So, um, really interesting because we kind of take for granted that we think that we just have ample amounts of vitamin C just, you know, circulating throughout and that we wouldn't have to consume it with it. But it, it looks like a supplement that would have vitamin C and some whey and some collagen would probably kind of be one of those optimal types of like, you know, pre-workout, especially for rehabilitative stuff, uh, kind of products out there, but I haven't seen anything like it yet. So I don't understand that. Cause I promoted this to a couple of supplement companies three years ago. And I'm like, this is a no brainer. Like, look at this yeah. research, collagen, vitamin C, you know, add a few other things for your pre-workout, some essential amino acids, uh -huh. like you're good to go. Like you can add stims, not add stims, you know, right. whatever, yeah. like and creatine, caffeine, whatever. And right. Like and this, <laughs> this would appeal to probably the biggest population, you know, older people that are looking to get back into the gym or, you know, athletes that are training really hard, like the story it's pretty easy to sell. We have some preliminary data on it. I mean, you know better than I do that half the supplements have no data on it anyway. So and they'll right, still sell right. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm so grateful for the companies that are actually out there getting the research under. They're investing in their products and they're yeah. they're spending a lot of money for this research. And you know, and you know, hopefully people recognize that and will kind of stick to the companies that are you know, making that investment, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I 100% agree that I do not know. I it's a no brainer to me also. I don't know why it doesn't exist yet. Yeah. So my, my poor man's cheap version, if clients are really on a budget is just buy the bulk essential amino acids. Uh -huh. They don't smell them because they smell like cat piss. They're horrible <laughs> tasting. They foam like crazy. Oh, and then buy uh, powdered uh, uh, lime juice in a powdered form and then add that with your 15 grams of collagen. So that's my poor man's version. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah. I've never tried the powdered uh, lime powder, but I know that just like powdered vitamin C is dirt cheap. Yeah. Dirt cheap. Yeah. The downside so, is that you don't need a lot. And if you put too much in, you're going to be in the bathroom, not <laughs> doing your training. So watch the amount. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about, you know, I don't know, I haven't really played around with the essential amino acids, but the great thing about collagen versus whey is that collagen dissolves in pretty much anything like, oh yeah, you know, 
whey. Super I've been easy. trying to make caffeine coffee drinks with whey my entire, you know, adult life. And it always <laughs> be nature's. It's always a hassle cooking with it. You know, collagen, you just throw it in some coffee. It's relatively tasteless and odorless and, you know, it doesn't clump or anything. So it's super easy to work with. So yeah, just kind of figuring out what you can put the actual, you know, essential amino acids in that won't have that effect. Then, you know, you have the perfect product. Yeah. Well, if any supplement people are listening, uh, send me my percentage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like where to find you. So they need research on it. We have a researcher here. So (laughs) yeah. What as a follow up to kind of a last question here as we wrap up for someone listening for general health, let's say, okay, I, I believe you, you crazy people and I'll take it before training, but for general health purposes, is there a recommended amount of collagen per day? And then the follow-up is, can they get that from, you know, real food? And if so, do they need to start eating cow tails and noses and stuff or what do they do? Oh yeah. Good questions. Um, I think the the literature supports benefits uh, anywhere from five to 15 grams a day, um, as low as five. It just sometimes it might take a little bit longer for uh, you to see some kind of differences, depending on what your goal is with it, too, whether it's pain, skin, bone, uh, you know, injury, recovery. Um, but I think as little as five, uh, you know, in our study, we saw, you know, five grams twice a day was beneficial for, uh, you know, activities a day, living and pain. Um, and so I would definitely say that that would be the recommendation as of right now. Um, and I think you can dip down as low as five a day. And then, uh, there is a difference between, uh, the hydrolyzed collagen, and, um, actually eating it in its native collagen form. And they have looked at studies and seen that, you know, it doesn't have the same effects potentially. Hmm. Um, a lot of the effects that we're seeing from the hydrolyzed collagen is because of those bioactive peptides. So those dye and tripeptides of the glycine, proline, hydroxyproline. And so it's, you're not necessarily going to have those intact peptides, uh, circulating in the bloodstream after eating an, something like a bone broth or gelatin even. Uh, just because it's not formulated that way. I mean, you'll definitely have those amino acids available um, for, you know, whatever processes you need. Like we talked about with glycine, us not having enough glycine present to potentially support a lot of its functions. Um, But it seems that the hydrolyzed collagen has the added benefits of having those peptides already intact. And those actually uh, we have peptide transporters and then we have individual amino acid transporters in the gut. And so we have preferential absorption of those intact peptides. So they potentially get into the bloodstream faster, even though nobody really knows how they get into the bloodstream intact because there don't seem to be any transporters. So that's another hmm. kind of area of study right now is that, um, are they being, you know, are they being kind of, you know, brought out of the, the intestine, like, in vesicles or by some different modes of transport, but regardless, they are seeing that these intact peptides are, um, prevalent in the circulation after consumption of, of hydrolyzed collagen up to two hours post basically peaking. And so that seems to be a big difference. And that could potentially be a big difference in some of the effects that you would see, um, between eating something that is like a bone broth or a gelatin based food versus having something that's been kind of formulated and broken down into those constituents. So 
long-winded answer. I apologize. No, that's good. Appreciate it. <laughs> but yeah, so um, you know, it seems that the the, the hydrolyzed protein, uh, collagen proteins or peptides are are a little bit more beneficial or superior um, to native collagen products just for those reasons. But yeah. I think eating the native cool. collagen is going to be better than not having uh, a a good source of it in your diet period. Cause that is kind of what our, you know, our cavemen, uh, ancestors were eating. And so, you know, I don't know if they were, if they had increased, uh, you know, healing or not, because we haven't been able to study them obviously, but, um, so that's another question there. So, yeah, no, that's good because I'm, I'm all for eating real food. I think that should be the basis of your diet, but at the same point, sometimes with supplements and modern technology doesn't make it evil. I mean, right. like a creatine, the amount of, you know, steaks you need to eat to get five grams of creatine a day. Yeah. Good luck. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. We're able to, you know, produce things in concentrated amounts that are, you know, therapeutic. And so, um, you know, dose makes the poison or the medicine. And so we're able to make medicines out of these foods that normally wouldn't have the benefits that they do in their native form. Um, so I definitely think that we should take advantage of the ones that we have been able to, uh, you know, use with science. It's just like everything else, all the other developments, we're living longer, we're getting stronger and it's all thanks to a lot of the research that we've been doing. So. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Um, what's next for you is, uh, Dr. Ormsey going to let you out of there at any time soon or. Yeah, I'm actually in the, the job. I just like giving process. him a bad time. So it's, it's all my fault. You're doing great. <laughs> no, no, he's great. He's been, he's been wonderful. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know the, the world is my oyster. So I'm currently kind of, uh, you know, exploring job opportunities since I am about to head on out of here and, nice. um, you know, be on my own again. So we'll see, hopefully supplement research or maybe, um, some aerospace physiology with, the military or NASA or something along those lines. So, oh. or maybe I can kind of do a little bit of both. So we'll see. Yeah. That'll be a, maybe a topic for another time. Cause I took a, when I did my master's, there was a guy who started the exercise phys program at Michigan tech who taught a class on aerospace physiology. He was one of the physiologists from the U S and worked with the Russian cosmonauts for many years, worked with NASA and to me, it's just fascinating because it's like all the stuff we do for exercise and strength training. It's like the inverse, like bizarro world. It's like the opposite. <laughs> no, like, you're you absolutely just throw right. someone in microgravity and everything just goes to shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had to explain to my nine-year-old daughter when I was telling her that I was looking at, you know, working with astronauts that I have to figure out how to uh, not let them turn into mush basically. Yeah. So. And, and don't volunteer for one of those. God, didn't they do a 90 day bed rest study? I think like a couple oh, of years yeah. ago. Yes. Oh. When they're looking at, <laughs> they were looking at the fiber type changes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And there were so many people in my muscle physiology class that were like, I would totally do that. And I was just like, yeah, for one day, no way, not for any amount of money no. would I ever be able to do that. So no, no. And yeah. I, I think one of the studies, I don't know if it was that study, they actually had a crane that lifted them to the bathroom. So it's not even oh. like you're, you're getting up to go to the bathroom. You're, you're trying to stay laying down and it's a slight, you know, increased, uh, downhill slant a little bit too on top of it. And 
Yeah, you couldn't pay me enough. I'm to actually surprised studies. that they didn't just insert <laughs> catheters into the, all the orifices just to like eliminate any need for movement. But I, I never yeah. actually read into the details of those studies enough to actually think about the bathroom. So. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they had a Foley catheter for the the urine. The other one yeah. might be a little trickier, but yeah, yeah. I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but cool. yeah, a good, interesting topic for another day. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to be found, where would people find you or other potential employers may want to hunt you down? Uh, where would they go? That is a very good question. So Maybe you don't want I, to be found, so that's okay no. too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do want to be found. I do want to be found. Um, I do have an Instagram account. You can find me under Shaloa Kvyatkovsky. I know it's a little bit difficult to spell. So, um, Or uh, at the ISSM FSU website uh, or the uh, – now we just changed our department name from, to uh, the – Department of Nutrition and Integrative Physiology at Florida State University. So my contact information uh, is all up there if you can't find me on social media. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all your time today and sharing all of your knowledge. It was super interesting. And I'm always grateful to to pick your brain, especially with all the stuff on collagen. And it's great to hear from someone who spent over three years looking at it on a day-by-day basis too so it's uh thank you so much for sharing all that yeah absolutely thanks so much for letting me uh give you my spiel and uh talk your ear off about college <laughs> no it's 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 good because i think it's one of those areas that's just going to become more and more popular and as you know in fitness when something becomes more popular there's just a whole bunch of crap that's not even remotely true <laughs> yes yeah absolutely and yeah i mean i'm still trying to kind of figure it out myself. But anecdotally, um, I didn't mention this previously, but we did, uh, once we unblinded the study, we did, the supplement company did send a year supply to any of the participants who are interested. And so a lot of them were from track clubs and triathlon clubs around Tallahassee. And so I did give a talk, uh, virtually to them and to give them the findings and kind of give them a PowerPoint about the background of, you know, you know, collagen. So they knew what they were supplementing with. And anecdotally, I had so many people give me so much positive feedback about how they, you know, they didn't see any changes. They were like, Oh, I must be in the placebo group. And then obviously there's, you know, the, you know, potential for placebo effect here, but when they were sent the actual product, they were like, I saw so many improvements on my pain dissipated after about three to six months, you know, kind Hmm. of consistent with all the literature and they weren't really aware of the literature. So it's just, it's really funny because I personally, you know, I've gone off and on of, you know, trying it and I've realized that I do see a difference when I do take it for a little while again. Um, and it was really nice to see that people felt really positive about, you know, their experience with it. Whereas a lot of things that you test generally, you know, people are really skeptical or people are just kind of, you know, mixed on their feelings of it. But especially the fact that people in the placebo group got an opportunity to take the the product afterwards and had really good feedback. It was kind of just really positive, um, just positive feedback for me to continue kind of looking into this because I have, I feel like a sense of efficacy. So. Yeah. I mean, that's my anecdotal thoughts too. I mean, I've tried it off and on for God, four and a half years now. I remember my, my buddy Cal Dietz coming up to me God, probably six years ago now, walked into his office. He's like, Hey, and they're like, what are you doing? He's like, Oh, a new supplement for some of my athletes. I'm like, what? He's like gelatin. 
like gelatin what the hell are you talking about it's like oh it's for their joints i'm like huh this is like a long time ago and i'm like oh yeah he was kind of on the right track just a little off but he was he was going in the right direction before anyone else was really thinking of it (laughs) yeah no it's 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 crazy like i remember you know back in the, I think the nineties when I was in middle school, my dad was taking like shark cartilage and Oh yeah. Like that. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, same concept, you know, and he was a tennis player and he was always struggling with like kind of joint issues. And so, you know, he was always kind of trying out new things, always just new supplements, trying to help him improve his performance and his fitness level and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's uh it's been an interesting road, but I'm glad that there's a little bit of traction and you know it's gaining popularity and um I think people are pretty happy when they start taking it. So I I figure why not figure out why it works? Yeah. See, you know, exactly what is it doing. So um I'm really, you know, hoping that we see something novel in some of the blood that we're gonna analyze over the next couple of months. And I'm excited to share the findings once, you know, I have those. Yeah, I think that'll be super interesting, especially if you find that it's like we talked about, it's not just a raw material, but it's setting off a bunch of these other processes that are are going on. Just even it's like most research, right? You think you've got something sort of figured out and then you've got like, you know, a hundred more questions because of it. So, <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And that's what I always say. I'm like, you see one thing, either you see, you don't see an effect or you do. And then that just opens up an entire Pandora's box for like a whole new line of research. So, yeah. Cause people are like, Oh, you finished your PhD. You must've solved all the questions you had. <laughs> I have no, like way I more questions, questions now than like the seven years before I even started it, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's, that's the conundrum with like getting a PhD. It's, you know, kind of like the more you learn, the more you know that you don't know anything. So. Yeah. I remember telling Cal this once I'm like, the more I know, the more I know, I don't know anything. And pretty soon I'll just know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I I say something very similar to people all the time. It's so frustrating. So I'm like, man, I study this so much. And just the more I study it, the more I know that I just don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything today. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, if you have any updates, we'd love to have you back on whenever. Okay. Thanks, Mike. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much to Shai for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate uh, all of her time. It was awesome to talk to her again. Such a wealth of knowledge. Uh, So if you have questions for her, she gave her contact information. So make sure to hit her up there. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Really appreciate it. If you could do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast via whatever app you are using, that helps us out a lot. If you can leave us a review, however many stars you feel is appropriate, uh, works for me. If you have constructive feedback, I'm down for that too. So Anything and everything helps us make this a better program uh, to help you reach your goals. So thank you so much. Uh, You can enroll and get information on the Flex Diet certification. Go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Again, it'll open January 2022. And in the meantime, you can still get on the wait list. It'll put you on the daily newsletter So go to flexdiet.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week.